Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read from the first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Just to say, uh, as we head into this, um, some of you will know that over the last week or so, I've been struggling a bit um, with... uh, what I keep referring to as a man cold, but it's affecting my voice. Um, And so I found uh, the last couple of times we've been together, uh, by the time we've sung, I've got no voice left. Um, So as we came this morning, I said to Mary, right, I am not going to sing this morning because I've got to preserve my voice for preaching. And then this rascal chooses all the songs he chose. How can you not sing? (laughs) You just think you've, you've got to. And so... I trust my voice will now survive, um, having enjoyed worshipping God. You know, the stones will cry out if we're silent. You've got to sing. But now I've got to speak. Um, So you may pray that my voice will give out shortly, or others of you will pray that it will survive. But we're coming to this wonderful passage where Paul starts to draw conclusions out of the truth that he's been setting out. Uh, Last time we were looking at this, we just dwelt on the first word of the chapter, therefore. We saw that truth has implications, and therefore, whenever we hear truth being expounded, it's appropriate at the end to say, well, so what? Because there's always a so what. We've heard truth, so this, so that. There are implications that come out of it. Paul is always concerned not just to to teach truth, but to make sure people see what difference that makes to our lives. And here he begins to spell some things out, the logical implications of the fact that we have been justified through faith. That in the wonderful mercy of God, he has included us in Christ, his He's made Christ the head of a new nation, as it were, and the head of our nation has done things on our behalf, and that includes us. We're involved in it. And he died as a sinner, having never sinned. We have sinned, he hadn't. And James read that wonderful passage about the thief on the cross saying, we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. No, he'd done nothing wrong. But he's become the head of our race and he takes our sin. He dies in our place so that we are freely forgiven, justified, declared righteous by God, right with God. And we receive that just by believing it. Not massive faith, just by believing it. All the work is God's. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And then... Paul goes on to say this peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now last time we looked at this, we talked about those things, but I just felt we needed to spend some more time on that phrase there in verse 2 
this grace in which we now stand. The word stand suggests withstanding pressure. In other words, it's not easy. Grace, standing in grace, is not easy. And if we're going to stand in grace, there are some things we need to be convinced of. We need to be absolutely sure of some things in order to stand there and withstand the pressures that would attempt to move us out of grace into something else. And very often people come into grace and appreciate that they've been saved simply by the work of Christ and then things happen and they move out of grace into something else. Well, what is the something else? What is the alternative to grace? Let's suppose this side of the platform, I'm standing in grace. In other words, the favor of God is on me. Whatever I do as I move through life, I'm in the favor of God. It's totally free. I didn't earn it. It was earned by Jesus. I come into the good of what he has done. But if I move over to this side, what am I standing in here? What's the alternative to grace? Well, a number of things. In fact, I've come up with nine things for the note takers. They love to know how many things they put one, two, three, four, and then realize they've missed one out and they look at the person next. What was that one? So I'll try and make it clear. What's the opposite to standing in grace? Well, first of all, failure. Standing in failure. A profound sense of not being good enough, of having got it wrong. Chapter 3, verse 20 tells us this. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. God's law makes us conscious of sin. Every time we hear what God requires, we become conscious of sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We live under that. That's where we are. And Paul graphically describes that in chapter 7. What, what happens to the person who knows the law of God, but they don't know the grace of God? They know what God requires, but they don't know what Jesus has done. So they're standing under law. What, what's true of a person like that? Well, Paul describes it in chapter 7. He says, I, verse 15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. This sense of failure. I know what I want to do, but I find myself doing the opposite. And he arrives then at verse 24 in that chapter. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's a person living not under grace, but under law, under a sense of what God requires, but how to do it. Every new attempt to please God is a new kind of failure. It never seems to work. So, failure. Secondly, following on from that, pressure. When you feel bad, then everything comes to you as pressure. You're vulnerable to manipulation. You're driven by guilt. And so every invitation to do something good, maybe someone says, isn't it wonderful 
that at the cross, God dealt with our sin and made it possible for us to come to God. We're able to pray to him and you hear prayer. Oh, I ought to pray. I must pray. I'm not praying enough. This good news that we can pray becomes pressure. Isn't it wonderful that God hasn't left us to find our way through life trying to work out what is true? God has spoken to us. We've got his word. We can read it. Oh, I must read the Bible. I really don't know the Bible enough. I don't spend enough time. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Isn't it wonderful? The church is allowed to gather together and pray. And when we gather together and pray, we find the presence of God and God answers prayer. Oh, I haven't been to the prayer meeting. I ought to go to the prayer meeting. What what, what must they think of me? Pressure, all good news becomes pressure because we feel bad, because we become aware of sin. And that leads on to this this kind of living under pressure of trying desperately to come to a place of peace, trying to feel good enough. But it's wrapped up with failure. We, We never quite achieve it. Failure, pressure. Which leads on to number three, rejection, feeling rejected. Our bad conscience, because we feel bad, we feel dissatisfied with ourselves, we then kind of transfer that to God and we feel he thinks badly of us and we can transfer it to other people as well. We reckon everyone else thinks pretty badly of us. And that then feeds back into pressure. Trying to please people. Trying to do what is expected of us, or what we think is expected of us. And we live under a load of guilt and the whole thing. These failure, pressure, rejection, all intertwined to make life pretty miserable, really. Trying to please people, desperate to be liked, but feeling basically no one likes us. And so, with this kind of rejection thing, you feel there's an in-group in the church, and all I know is I'm not in that group. There's the people who always get invited to do things, the people who are always invited to events, but they don't want me. They wouldn't notice if I wasn't there. This... Because of the despair of trying to please God, you think everyone else looks down on you as well. Fourthly, standing in this miserable place, I assure you there is good news later on, standing in this miserable place, very low expectations. <coughs> little, very little expectation of God blessing you. Very little expectation of receiving anything from God. And so Mark encouraged us from the front this morning to fan into flame the gift that is in you. If you're on this side of the platform, you think, what gift that is in me? There's nothing to fan into flame. And there's highly unlikely to ever be anything to fan into flame. And so we hear the encouragement, and it's pressure. Rejection. The whole thing, the whole mix of things. God's not going to bless me. God's not going to give me any gifts. God's not going to use me because basically God is cross with me. 
God is disappointed with me. I'm disappointed with me. God surely is disappointed with me. And he's not going to use me. There's really no point in ever raising my head above the parapet and taking any kind of initiative because it's sure to end in failure. It's bound to be no good because that's me and that's what God thinks of me and that's what everyone else thinks of me. Linked with low expectations and moving on to the next number five, a basic fear that things are not going to work out. I suppose pessimism, but fear basically. Because there's no awareness of God's favor, life is a kind of uphill struggle and there are fears or can be fears about your health. For young people, the the fear of finding a marriage partner. Will it ever happen? Will anyone ever want me? And so the pressure Again, it comes back to that. The fear of things not working out. And linked with that, but a separate thing, number six, financial fears. No freedom to be generous. No freedom to give. And so, Sunday mornings, the blue buckets come round and we say, uh, normally this is an opportunity to give. If you come prepared to give, let's do that. And maybe because you're thinking, what do people think of me? You think, I ought to put something in. Because what will people think if I let it go past and don't put anything in? So pressure, I must put something in. But I won't put much in because I can't afford to. And so there's no awareness, no, no freedom to give. And yet, as you put the minimum in, there's also guilt that you haven't put more in. So it's a lose-lose situation. The fear of giving, but linked with that, the guilt because you didn't. And so giving becomes a real problem. And every time, which hopefully you think is not going to be often, but every time anyone teaches about giving, your heart sinks because you're hearing pressure. I can't afford to do this. What about this? What about that? How I can't give much. And then there's guilt about it. And the whole thing is, is bound up with no freedom and guilt. But contrasting with all of that, there can also be pride. This is the contrasting alternative to grace. Almost a feeling, I don't understand this about grace. I don't understand all this about needing someone to take my place, needing someone to have mercy on me, because really, I'm not that bad. In fact, I reckon I'm pretty good. I'll put it this way. I know a lot of people who are worse than me. So grace, wonderful grace. What's so wonderful about grace? I just don't see it. And then linked with that, there can be this kind of niggle. Why don't other people recognize how gifted I am? Why don't I get the openings that my gifting deserves? So pride, I'm pretty good really. 
But why don't people see that? Why don't I get the recognition that I ought to have? And linked with pride, number eight, critical attitudes towards other people. Because you haven't received grace, you're unable to show grace. And when you don't show grace, you'll be very quick to see the quite inexcusable weaknesses of other people. And indeed, as you stand this side of the platform in your pride and your critical attitude, you are offended to see people who you know do things wrong standing that side and enjoying grace. And it's not right. Someone needs to tell them, you feel. And so you hear people saying, why all this about grace? Why not more about dealing with sin? Yeah, you're this side of the platform. Because you're not aware of receiving grace. You're indignant that anyone else should. Or, number nine, on this side of the platform, just apathy. Understanding enough about grace to totally misunderstand it. What I mean is, You understand about God's unconditional love, but you misunderstand it, and you think, well, therefore, nothing matters. It's all okay. God loves me unconditionally. Why bother? Why bother? It'll all work out all right because of grace. So total apathy, which is a misunderstanding of God's wonderful grace. So there are nine alternatives. I'm sure there are many more, but um, they're the nine that immediately came to mind. What then, over this side of the platform, living in the favor of God, what are some of the characteristics of standing in grace? You've moved out of that field. You're into this one, into this sphere, the favor of God. What does it mean? What have we got to be convinced of so that we withstand the pressure to slip back there? Because I guess, for all of us, as I've run through those nine things, there'll be some things you identify with. You think, oh, yeah, I do that. It's possible to slip back. What have we got to be convinced of then? What have we got to be absolutely sure about? So we make these logical deductions and say, therefore, because of this, we stand in grace. First thing, we're in Christ. You know that you are in Christ And you know, therefore, because Christ is the dear Son of His Father, you are also accepted because you're in Christ. That is your position, permanent position. You've been taken out of Adam, normal humanity. You've been moved in to this new humanity, this new race, headed up by Christ, and you are in Him. And you know that nothing can separate you from Him. Permanent position, absolute rock-solid fact, I am in Christ. Paul argues this through, doesn't he, in chapter 8 of this wonderful letter, when he starts saying, 
He said, we know this, we know that, I am convinced of this, and so on. And one of the things he says in verse 38 of chapter 8 is, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present, future, any powers, height or depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our position. We are in Christ and nothing can come between us. We are inseparable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our permanent position, and we believe it. Otherwise, we're not saved. The way to be saved is to come into Christ. And if that is our position, that is our position. It doesn't vary. Our feelings will vary, our moods will vary, our success rate will vary, but our position, no. It's permanent. We are in Christ. One of the ways you know, incidentally, whether someone is genuinely born of God or whether they've just made a commitment. We can make commitments and then forget about it. We're genuinely born of God. We've been transferred out of one sphere into another. We're in Christ. Our moods will vary. All sorts of things will change, but we're in Christ. That is permanent fact. Paul says, writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's our position. Christ was raised from the dead, we're in him. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, we're in him. We're as close to God permanently as it's possible to be because we're in Christ and he's seated at the right hand of his Father. That is our position, and we know it. We know we're accepted because of Christ, and we know, therefore, we're dearly loved because of him. We are in God's dearly loved Son. And secondly, we know that this is not dependent on us. We are absolutely clear that it was no merit in us that brought us into this sphere because we know that we were a failure. We know that we have sinned. The law makes us conscious of sin, but God, in his grace, took us out of one realm, brought us into Christ, and we know it's nothing to do with us. God didn't see some spark in me that made him think, I think I'll save that guy. There was no spark. Nothing. He didn't see potential. There was no potential apart from potential to sin and to go further and further away from God. There was nothing. And it's completely beyond explanation apart from the mercy of God, the grace of God. He saved me and he brought me into Christ. And it was nothing to do with me. So Ephesians 2 verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not not by our works, so that no one can boast. It's nothing to do with me. God has put me there, and it is sheer mercy. Because of that, Because I'm in this wonderful sphere where God has put me in Christ, I'm loved, I'm accepted, it has nothing to do with me, I hold that position, and therefore I am unpressured. 
Over here, pressure. Every, every bit of good news comes to me as bad news. Good news that I can pray becomes bad news. I've got to pray. Good news that God wants to feed me through his word becomes bad news. I've got to read it and I'm not reading it enough. Everything is pressure. But over this side, there's no pressure. Because it's grace. I, I'm free to resist manipulation. Free to resist the kind of guilt dumping that people will sometimes put on you. Can I say, one of the worst, I think, groups of people to dump guilt on others are parents. Many adults, young adults or not so young adults, still live under the manipulation that comes from their parents. The way it happens is this. For young children, growing up at home, they do what mum and dad say. Of course you do. Young children, you always obey your parents, don't you? Of course you do. Not least because your parents are bigger than you. And so you've got to. But you want to. Because your parents know everything. They are incredibly clever. Whatever questions you come home from school with, your parents know the answers. They know everything. Nick is just pointing that out to his sons. He knows everything. He wants them to be aware. He knows everything. That's parents. Now, parents, if you've got young children here, you might want to cover their ears at this point. Children grow up. And when they become teenagers, maybe they're bigger than mum and dad now. And they realize <gasps> mum and dad aren't always right. As you grow up, you begin to think independently. And then, of course, you leave home. For parents, <coughs> for parents, that can be the difficult point. They have been in control or attempted to be in control, but now their offspring have left home, are forming friends that the parents don't know. How are parents going to stay as number one? Well, often by dumping guilt. After all I've done for you. You know, that sort of thing. Emotional blackmail. Or maybe as grow, grow up in a single parent family and then whichever parent is saying, you know, you've got your friends, but I'm all on my own and it's my birthday. Oh, we've got to go. You know, dumping guilt. And then, of course, you not only leave home, you marry. Oh, a big challenge for the parent. Because now there's someone else in your life that you love. Parents suddenly think, hey, what about us? And parents want to be number one. And so you get families that are really controlled. The family grouping means much more than any other grouping because the parents make sure. So the kids have left home, they're married, but still when the family get together, the family must get together. There's no freedom. You know, there was a young man who came to Jesus and said, I want to be your disciple, but let me bury my father first. Now, it wasn't that his father had died and the funeral was at the weekend or something. It was that his father hadn't yet died. And he said, I will follow you when my father 
has died and I'm free then from him to serve you. Jesus said no. Wasn't going to have it. Who is number one in your life? Not your dad. Not your mum. God. And when you marry, who's number one in your life? Your partner. Parents sometimes don't like that. I don't know if it's okay to say this, but when, when I first moved to Sheffield, some of you will know, when I first moved to Sheffield, when we first moved to Sheffield, uh, my mother came as well because she was now on her own. She was widowed and elderly. And she had always been very sensitive to, to our relationship, Mary and I and so on. But when she came to live with us, there was a, ty- a flashpoint every Sunday. Every Sunday, we went to church, go out to the car, Who's going to sit in the front seat next to me? That was the flashpoint. Who's going to sit in the front seat next to me? I was absolutely clear who was going to sit there. My wife. And my mum, bless her heart, didn't like it. She wanted to sit there. I'm her boy. Yeah, but she's my wife. (laughs) And she's number one. Because you leave father and mother to cleave to your wife. Manipulation. As your parents get elderly, suddenly you think, what what about, you know, what obligations have I got? Yeah, well, honor your father and mother, but resist emotional blackmail. If you're in the grace of God, you're free of guilt. But if you're not in the grace of God, you are prone to feeling bad, And because you're prone to feeling bad, you're vulnerable to manipulation. When we leave home, we leave home. When you get married, you leave your father and mother. You love them. You honor them. Of course you do. But there are new commitments, new allegiances. Husbands, make sure your wife knows she's number one in your affections. Your mum, she's there. But she does not control you. Yeah, said enough on that. We're free of pressure. Then, fourthly, standing in the grace of God, we expect grace. We know there's always more. We have come into the grace of God, and so we expect grace to be able to do everything that God requires us to do, and we don't expect grace to do what God hasn't required us to do. So we're very comfortable. Paul could say to the Corinthians, when he was having to do some straight talking with them, he said, I know that my sphere reaches you. He knew that he wasn't going beyond what God had given him to do. There's grace to do what God has given us to do, And there is no grace to do what he hasn't given us to do. So we stay within the sphere that God has appointed for us. And so Paul could say, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, (coughs) he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. You think of all the incredible things that Paul did. Being in the grace of God doesn't make you apathetic or passive. He was going for it, but always within the grace of God. He knew what God had given him. Back in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. He says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. We know the grace that God has given. And we know that it's all grace. And we know that grace will enable us to do what God has given us to do. But we, we're not under pressure to be something that we're not. And we're not niggled by other people getting given opportunities that we don't get. We trust the grace of God. I can look back in my life with shame, I have to say, look back at times in my life with shame when I was upset that I wasn't asked to do things. I saw other people that I regarded, I have to say with shame, I regarded as being less gifted than me or less qualified than me. And I saw them being given openings, opportunities, profile, and I wasn't getting it. And I look back at it with horror, really, because it's so ugly. But yeah, that, all that was there. And you think, who am I living for? Grace means I recognize the sheer goodness of God, that he took me out of sin, he's put me in Christ, and now I trust his grace. And I will stay within the sphere that he, in his grace, has given me. And because of grace, I will show grace to others and I'll be, I'll be thrilled that they've got that opening that I wanted. And I'll pray that God will really bless them in it and they'll get fame and profile and that people will forget I exist. <laughs> but God will never forget I exist. And that's what I'm so grateful for. I'm in the grace of God. We expect grace to be, to be enabled to do what God gives us to do. So we'll respond in faith because we know there's grace to do it. But we don't go beyond grace. We don't go into self-promotion. We don't go into manipulation. We don't go into anger about other people. No, we stay within grace. And because we stay within grace, there's no fear in our lives. Because being in the grace of God, to quote Psalm 23, we expect goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Whatever circumstances, whatever life throws at me, whether it's good or bad, whether there's blessing or difficulty, what I do know is goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. We know there's grace continually. Of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace, John tells us in John chapter 1. And we know that will always be the case. So, no fears about our future. No fears, young people, about will I find a marriage partner. I'm not going to stress about that. I'm not going to be looking for anyone, whether they're suitable or unsuitable. No, I'm trusting the grace of God. I'm trusting the grace of God with regard to my job, with regard to my future, with regard to my health, with regard to everything. And I know if God chooses to lead me by a difficult path, there will be grace for that. 
because goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Have you ever read any of the terrible stories of Christian martyrs? Have you ever read how people in the past, not so distant past, have faced terrible deaths so well? Goodness and mercy following them, even into the flames, even into, however, the hideous death that they're going to suffer. Goodness and mercy will follow me. We're in Christ. We're in the grace of God. Whether things go well or things go badly, there's grace. Nothing changes that. Nothing changes that. The only time... I guess we step out of grace, is this true? The only time we step out of grace is when we step into heaven. And then we're changed. And there's no sin anymore. And so, we just enjoy God. But it's grace that got us there. And we know that will always be the case. And so, sixthly, we will be generous. Under law... All the fears about the future and so on. I mean, being afraid of giving, reluctant to give, resentful, and then guilty. In the grace of God, grace transforms us. One of the things we read in the book of Acts, as soon as people are baptized in the Spirit, suddenly they start giving. They've received this wonderful gift from God, and having freely received, they freely give. Start giving to one another. Anyone's got need? Selling houses and land. and Wow, that's giving. You can't put that in the blue bucket. But they did it. They're just giving because it's, they've received grace. And Paul says such well-known words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he says it expresses it very significantly. <coughs> Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. That's what it is. It's grace. How is it expressed? Well, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's grace. God has given grace to these people, so they've got no money, but they're generous and He says, I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That's grace. Hilarious giving, Paul goes on to describe it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Grace means you enjoy it. Over this side, resentful, reluctant, fearful, can't afford it, or guilty. If people knew how little I give, what would they think of me? Oh, pressure of people's opinion. Horrible. Horrible. I often quote the example. So if you've heard it again, uh, heard it before, forgive me if you hear it again. But some years ago, I was waxing eloquent on this subject when I was preaching. um, And I just threw out the comment. In fact, I'll say it again now. What I said was, if anyone put anything in the offering this morning and you resent it, please come and take it back afterwards. I, I offer that invitation now. If you put anything in the offering and think, I can't really afford that. I resent that. Please come and Find the blue buckets, they're locked away, but we'll get them out for you. We'll find your gift and you can have it back. Poor you. When I said that, this time when I was preaching, this, a guy in his 20s came up to me and said, yeah, he said, uh, I resent what I put in. He said it like that, actually. Yeah, he said, 
I resent what I put in. So we found his check, gave it back to him. He tore it up and walked away. You think, oh, what a sad guy. Don't know whether it's significant, but subsequently he got into grievous sin, left the church, and I don't know what happened to him next. You think, oh, grace? There's no grace there. The grace was to say, you can have it back. But no grace transforming his heart. But grace means hilarious giving. Hey, I enjoy this. Let's put some more in. Let's double the amount. It's grace. Because God has given us his son. Because God has taken us out of where we were and he's put us in Christ. And we're there forever. And goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And therefore, as I give, he's going to give to me. As I sow, I'm going to reap. He's going to increase my supply so I can be more generous. His grace. Over here, it's can't really afford it. I'll put something in just for show, but it's not much. It rattles, it doesn't rustle. (laughs) Take it back. God doesn't need your money. But he does love transforming grace. And because we're, we're in grace, we're able to show grace. Having received mercy, we show mercy to others. Instead of pouncing on other people's failures, criticizing so quickly, we know our own heart. We know God has forgiven much, and so we forgive. Paul expresses it as he works through this theme in Romans. In Romans chapter 14, he says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything mustn't look down on him who doesn't, and the man who doesn't eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Do you see that wonderful grace? Not criticizing people. You've got it made a stand on something. I don't eat this. Or I don't drink this. They do. That's bad. If they were as sanctified as me, they wouldn't do it. No, 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 no. Their faith enables them to do it. This is on disputable matters. Not matters of morality or clear right and wrong. These are disputable matters. But we're so quick or can be so quick to judge one another. Not if you're in the grace of God. Because you know grace. And you say, who am I to judge that person? They're they're living before God. Get what it says. It's a totally different atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, there is no apathy. But we're zealous for God. We're overwhelmed with wonder, sheer amazement, gratitude at the grace of God. Does it astound you? That God ever took notice of you? When you think of the millions of people on planet Earth and the millions of people that have been on planet Earth, I think that God took note of me when I was a kid, in fact, before I was born. And He loved me. Why? 
And he's shown mercy. And why? That amazement means I can't be apathetic. I can't be just indifferent, drifting through life. The grace of God doesn't make me kind of, oh, well, who, God loves me anyway, why bother? The grace of God overwhelms me with sheer gratitude to God, and I'm thrilled with what he's brought me into. Therefore, I, I've got to deal with sin. I can't just play fast and loose with God. I don't want to play fast and loose with God. And there's grace that enables me to conquer what I couldn't conquer when I was in law. Every new attempt over here was new failure. I, what I don't want to do, that I do. What I, I do, what I don't want. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's law. But over here, the grace of God is here to enable me to deal with things. There is power to change. It is transforming grace. Paul expresses it in his letter to Titus. Titus chapter 2 verse 11, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us to say no to some things. Sorry about that. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Law teaches us we ought to say no, but I can't. I don't want to, but I find myself doing it. Law doesn't lift a finger to help. In the grace of God, the Spirit of God has come into me, and the Spirit of God is a Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in me, so by faith in God in me, you say no to things. Just as simple as that. No. Anyone can say no. It's a very short word. But when you say no with faith, no it is. It's not strength to conquer this, but no. I'm in Christ. No, I won't do that. No, I won't think that. No, I won't watch that. No, it's very simple. Just no. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. There is zeal, not out of I must. What would people think? I've got to try and please God. No, God is pleased with me. I'm in Christ. And in this new position, my life is going to change. It must and it will because of the grace of God. All of this is simple logic. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, through faith, we're justified through faith, we're in this new relationship with God, and we're in grace. It's a matter of logic. It's a matter of faith. We believe the fact, and it is fact. And because we believe that fact, everything changes. And there is actually absolutely no alternative. We spend a lot of time looking at the alternative to grace, but really there is no alternative. There is only one gospel. There is only one salvation. Only one saviour. And that's all about grace. And there isn't anything else. 
When we come into Christ, that's where we are. But you've got to believe it. Got to believe it. To see where God has brought us. And there are pressures. No, we stand in grace. We, we withstand the pressures. We will not move out of it. This is the only place to be because this is the good news of, faith, uh, of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.